You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway, Travel Department and Doro Phones for making this podcast possible. Hello and welcome to Take Two. I'm Mike Murphy and my guest is John Banville. Take Two is our new series of podcasts about books and this is how it goes. Each of us picks a book we really enjoyed and then John introduces a third one, a novella, some poetry, something he feels deserves more attention. Today our books are from American writers, two Pulitzer Prize winners and uh, I've chosen the first, Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. It's more or less, more or less, a collection of short stories set in Maine and at the core of everything is Olive, a typical New Englander, difficult, disagreeable, a school teacher and a bit of a nosy parker. Uh, an unusual protagonist, John. Did you warm to her? Oh, I did, but then, you know, she's a bit of a curmudgeon like me. Uh, so I saw... John, uh, I, I, surely not. not certain, certain fellow feeling there. <laughs> I think she's a wonderful character, um, very American. Uh, I, the last time I was in America, I was in Maine. And uh, my friend Richard Ford, whom we'll be discussing later, <laughs> said of Maine, he said, it's like Minnesota without the sense of humor. <laughs> is that right? Maine along the coast is wonderful, you know, holiday homes, rich people. Uh, you go inland from the coast and it's tough country. So Olive Kittredge is part of that. She's a Maine tough character. Yeah. But she's also, of course, she has a good heart. She's very fair. She doesn't suffer fools gladly. One of the things I like about her as well. Um, in fact, she doesn't suffer anybody gladly. You know, everybody has to prove him or herself before she'll accept him or her as being, you know, acceptable and she's decent. She's what? What age? 45, 50, I suppose, in her around uh, uh, Yeah, but she ex-school gets, teacher. She gets quite old as the book goes on. As the book goes on. I mean, I think she's in her 60s. Married to Henry, and yeah. poor Henry. In the, in the first chapter, he's a chemist, and in the first chapter, he, he falls, he gets a crush on Denise, who comes to work for him in the pharmacy. And it's kind of sad. Olive just couldn't give a curse really but she sees that Henry loves Denise and then Denise announces that she's going to get married poor Henry's a bit heartbroken yes it is it's 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 uh it took me a while uh after two or three stories I thought something familiar about these and then I looked to the publications page and I saw many of them had appeared in the New Yorker and they're very much New Yorker stories well-written, mm. controlled, uh, no possibility of experimentalism. or It's usually a good thing. But this book is very, you know, the surface of it is very smooth. Uh, there are lots of surprises along the way, uh, again, which is a sort of New Yorker-esque thing. I'm not saying that it's New Yorker style of story to, to be critical. I'm just saying I, it, it did mm. fix it for me because I thought that I was starting to read a novel and then after two or three chapters, so-called, I thought, ah, this is what she's done. Since it's almost impossible to get a book of short stories published nowadays, she's written a book of short stories pretending it's a novel by having this character continuous throughout. Very clever. Very clever. And also, it's, it's interesting that in some of the stories, Olive hardly appears at all. Like, she only makes a kind of a, a token, extra type, extras type appearance in it. But it's also an interesting device in introducing a community, isn't it? 
Yes, the community is, <laughs> as I say, Minnesota without a sense of humor. Um, she's pretty harsh on, on the community. As Richard Ford, who lives up there in Maine, he's harsh on it as well. Uh, but, you know, it does catch something of the orneriness of America and of American life. It, they, don't, they don't accept things. They don't accept, and they're constantly, they want something new. She's a very difficult relationship with her son, Christopher. And uh, she thinks Christopher, who has moved off to her disgust because he was going to live in the house next door and he has moved off and married and gone to New York. And she thinks he's very, very cruel to her. But of course... We're, we, the readers, are saying, well, maybe you weren't all that kind to him when he was young. Well, poor Olive, like many people, has not learned the language of love. She doesn't know how to express love. Uh, you can see Christopher's childhood. You, know, you can just see it. Uh, she'd say, you know, what are you doing? Get up, get out. And then she's a schoolteacher. And what child would want a schoolteacher for a parent? Uh, because, you know, schoolteachers... Well, schoolteachers are always teaching. You know, they, they, they can't disengage. And they're even, like, they're he, like, even Henry's on the receiving end. Yeah, they're like writers, you know, they can't disengage in what they do. I must ask you about that, by the way, since you mentioned it. I was thinking about you just before we, we came to record this, and I was thinking about the three, the three writers that we're going to be talking about in this particular session. Um, Elizabeth Strout, we'll talk about Henry James, who I know um, you have a great time for, and Richard Ford, whom you mentioned already. And I was try thinking in terms of a common link between them. One, of course, that they're all, in my view, really top-class writers. They're all American, as, as it happens as well. But um, in terms of technique, do you see formulae in, in their writing. Taking this woman for a start, okay, you've already said it's kind of using the short story in a clever kind of a way to make a novel out of it. But in terms of her writing style, in terms of her technique, what are your observations? Uh, she goes back to Mark Twain, uh, a good, solid story told with humour, with quirkiness, with odd characters. Um, Henry James really wanted to be a European. He just thought America was completely hopeless for a writer. He had nothing to write about in America. And Richard Ford is extraordinary in that he, certainly in the book we're going to be discussing, in that trio of books, uh, Sports Writer, Independence Day, The Lay of the Land, he has developed a wonderfully dandified style. Uh, it's, it is absolutely American, but it's American as written by a man who spent a lot of time in Europe. So he's taken a lot of that playfulness uh, that you get in European fiction. You know, uh, American writers don't go in much for irony. Irony is not, doesn't really work in America because there are so many different nationalities that you have to speak plainly. You can't, you can't speak ironically. But he uses irony constantly throughout. And he gets away with it. I don't quite know how he does it. The book has an American accent, but it has Europe's thumbprints all over it. Now, Henry James, of course, was quintessentially European, became a British citizen in yeah. 1914. 
James loved the self-conscious wickedness of Europe. Uh, he, people in America weren't bad enough for him. James is not interested in public life at all. Henry James is only interested in the interior of the mind, or the soul, if you like. All of his books are about individuals and about individual action. The collective life of America didn't interest him at all. Mm. We'll move on to James shortly, but an observation you made there about being uh, about teachers and writers. When you're writing yourself, are you you're if you you I know you're a disciplined writer. You you go and write from nine a.m. till five p.m. or something like that. I know you're you're a disciplined writer, but can you can you switch off? Can you go to sleep at night? Can you do you wake up in the morning and you're thinking in terms of what I am about to write. I had another I had another idea about another chapter, another divergence in the plot. It does it does it no. obsess you like that? Yeah, I know I write twenty four hours a day. Do you? Day, even when I'm asleep. It's a lifelong obsession. It's a it consumes all my time. Which is a good thing. And there is the the ego of the artist is very close to the ego of well, let me put it this way. If you look at the 20th century, Hitler was a failed painter. Stalin was a failed poet. Paul Pott was a failed poet. Um, nothing more dangerous than a failed artist. <laughs> nothing more dangerous. And it is obsessive, is it? So you, you're thinking about your plot. Or you, you've come up with an idea for a novel and um, you now, you're going to have to flesh it out. Um, so... You are thinking about it day and night, really, aren't you? Yes. You must do. You have to. I mean, it's, 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 it's a vocation. Then, is there a huge amount of research? In some of the books you did, there was, was a huge amount of research, I oh, know. Oh, yes. I read three or four books. <laughs> yeah. No, look, that gives me the opportunity to say, as with Olive Kittredge, as with all three books we're looking at today, as Wallace Stevens says, the world imagined is the ultimate good. The imagination is the strongest faculty we have. It's the greatest faculty we have. We only, we can only deal with other human beings by imagining them into existence. Otherwise, they're just ciphers. Otherwise, they're what? Just ciphers. They're just people in the street. But you, you, you meet people. You get to know them. As the, few as possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to all of Kitteridge. Can, um, uh, can what I, I like, what I liked, one of the things I really liked about Olive Kittredge is that she's not interested in being nice to people or no. people being nice to her. I really like that. That's a very original. Yeah. Uh, that's very original on Elizabeth Stroud's part because most writers of her kind, if there are writers of her kind, they want people to interact with each other. Another one of those words I really loathe. Uh, interact and communicate and all that stuff. People don't interact and communicate. This is, this is an illusion. We talk to ourselves. You wouldn't read many books, I should imagine, about feelings, about emotions, would you? Well, no. <laughs> you wouldn't really, would you? They're, they're, doesn't interest you. I notice in the books that we've, that you you like um, Elizabeth Bone, Iris Murdoch, Henry James, there is a kind of a mannered feel to all of their writings. 
And none of them really are delving into the human emotion to any great extent. I know you're going to tell me Henry James did and he, he did in his last series of books, but in the main, they're not getting into human emotions. Uh, Elizabeth Bishop is somebody we'll be dealing with in, in time. And Elizabeth Bishop, as a poet, did not wish to deal with her emotions or did not wish her emotions to be made public. You'd rather contribute to this um, way of, of existing and living and writing. One of the great illusions and delusions that young people have when they start out trying to be a writer is that they imagine they're going to express themselves. They imagine that, that all that incoherent emotion and feeling and sensitivity, it's all going to be expressed in this book. It takes years to discover that it's not self-expression you're after. Because you can't do it. And secondly, who wants to know? It's like telling people your dreams. Nothing more boring. What art does is it sets up a stylized, separate reality that by some strange, rough magic resembles our world uncannily. We, if you're reading Ulysses, Leopold Bloom will be more real to you than the person sitting across the breakfast table. This is a very strange phenomenon. This is why I go back to, this is the power of the imagination. We, we imagine the world into being. Will you ever write your autobiography? Yes, I have a plan to write my autobiography in which everything is slightly wrong. <laughs> All the facts are slightly wrong. You know, I have a brother and sister, so I'd say I have two brothers. And I was born in 1945, so I'd say I was born in 1947. People would come to me, interviewers, and say, but these, these are not facts. And I say, where did you get your facts? And they say, well, from Google and Wikipedia. And I say, ah, well, there's your problem. <laughs> Mischief-making. <laughs> Wouldn't it be a great book? <laughs> it would be. You'd enjoy it, I know. Oh, don't let me be the interviewer, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's our first book, Olive Kittredge. By the way, would you be tempted? She did a follow-up. Elizabeth Stroud did Olive again. Would you be tempted to read it? If, which is highly unlikely, I were taking a transatlantic flight, I would certainly take the second book and read it because it's, it's smoothly entertaining. It has depths. It's moving in places. It does everything that a short story, New Yorker short story, is expected to do. Okay, that's our first book, Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Stroud. Your free travel card can be used on all expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. 
To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. And welcome back. John Banville, you would like to chat a little bit about um, The Turn of the Screw, which is by Henry James. And there are those who would say probably the greatest ghost story ever written. Well, I think it is the greatest ghost story ever written. But it is ambiguous. Henry James himself, who was very embarrassed by the story, by the way, he just saw it as a potboiler thing to make a bit of money. Uh, and he was always making excuses for it and apologies for it. The wonderful thing about it is that you read it as I did when I was, say, 15, and I took it as a very frightening, very powerful ghost story. It had the effect on me that one of those dark, dark nightmares, you you know, it stayed with me for days, the feeling, the sensation. Then I read it years later, and I thought, hang on, nobody sees the ghosts except the central character, the governess. And Henry James himself described the story as a trap for the unwary. You have to be very wary indeed. Who is being haunted here? What are these ghosts? Do they exist? Do the children see them? So we should say that the story is very simple. A rich young man about town uh, acquires a pair of orphan nephew and a niece. He doesn't want them. Doesn't want them anything to do with them. So he hires a governess. She's never named throughout the book. She's nameless. And he says to her, she's a young girl. She's been in a vicarage. Not a young girl. She's about, I guess she's about 18 or 19. Grown, grown up in a vicarage. Never knew much about, of the world outside the vicarage. And he says to her, look, I want you to go down to my house in the country. The house, Bly, which is almost a character in the story. He said, I want you to look after these two little mites, these two little angels, but there's a condition. You must not contact me. I don't want to know anything about it. You have all power. Now, that's where Henry James, I'm sure that's the bit he's ashamed of, because, you know, that's obviously necessary for the story, but it's, you know, what, what guardian would be that heartless, would say. Anyway, that's the, that's the setup. So she goes down, and there's her, and there's Mrs. Gross, the ho- uh, housekeeper. These two little children do seem angelic, Miles and Flora. Uh, they're sort of six, seven, eight, nine, that sort of age. And everything's just lovely at first. This beautiful big house, this young woman is thrilled. But she keeps saying, you know, if I were to see him. And as a little aside, Henry James is the master of the ambiguous pronoun. People are constantly saying, yes, well, he went to see her. He did. And she said, no, not her, the other one. And it's, it's a, it works wonderfully because you never know quite where you are. So she's, she's constantly thinking, you know, if I should see him. And it becomes obvious that she has fallen in love with 
the guardian of the two, but she's never going to see him again. And then one day she's walking uh, in the grounds and she sees a man on top of a tower. And she thinks, oh, it's him, it's him. But it's not him. When she tells the housekeeper about it and she describes him to the housekeeper, the housekeeper says, Quint, Peter Quint, the master's former ballot. Uh, she says, you've described him perfectly, but he's dead. Then she sees a ghost of a woman, young woman, Miss Jessel, the former governess, who left and went away. And as Mr. Gross said, she had to, she had to go away. So we know that she was having an affair with Peter Quint. She's obviously got pregnant. And then she died. So the two, Quint and Miss Jessel, are both dead. And the new governess keeps seeing them. And then she says, I know what it is. They're after the children. They're not interested in me. They want the children. They want to possess them. And somebody once asked Henry James, you know, how much wickedness am I to imagine into this story? And he said, as much as you're capable of, dear boy, as much as you're capable of. So the awful implication is that these two children are having an incestuous relationship because they're possessed by these two ghosts. This is what, this is all in the governess's mind. Um, but there's also and, the possibility, were they being abused by Quint? That's also a possibility. As much evil as you can imagine, dear boy. Uh, Henry James had the most... You know, people think of Henry James as polite novelist of manners. Henry James had the most acute sense of wickedness, of how exploitative people are, of how they wish to possess each other, how they wish to destroy each other. And this story is all about the possessiveness and the destructiveness of human beings. Now, I won't give the end away because, you know, I wish people would read mm. it. The style is a bit developed, shall we say, but it's worth sticking with it. It is a superb story, and the end is really shattering. He was ashamed of it. Do you think it was what you said there a few moments ago about, about the two children um, and the guardian not wanting to, to see them again? Or, did he see, or was it that he said, it, look, look at it, it's just a pot boiler, it's just to earn a few bucks. I don't like, know what people are going no, on about. No writer would ever be ashamed of what he's made people do in a book. Um, we love our characters. Mm. The more wicked they are, the more we love them. The whole thing is the ambiguity, isn't it? Yeah. About about is the governess is is yeah. there something wrong with yeah. the governess mentally? Yeah. He, I mean, he just hated the story because he'd written it very quickly and he'd written it for money. Um, it's amazing how often something written quickly and for money turns out to be a masterpiece. Yeah. Look at Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. Um, was it another one? Did yeah, Robert I mean, Louis Stevenson, Louis Stevenson was that a didn't know he was going order? to make a, a modern myth that would last for as long as we will. Interesting that Henry James does uh, concentrate the story in an English big house because really it was the world to which he was very attracted. I know that when he and his siblings were young, the father took them on many a trip around Europe and they basically all fell in love with Europe, but particularly Henry. And I think Henry really, I, wasn't it Paris and London were, Paris and London were the two places that he really wanted to, to live and, and actually finished up living almost completely in London or yeah. in and around London. He loved London, he loved London society, he was a fluent 
French speaker. He knew French society as well, but he just loved the English. He loved that bland wickedness that the English can do. Uh, you know, you're talking to an English person and you think you're really interesting them and you realize that they're sort of just, just barely stopping themselves from laughing, especially if they're Irish. He loved uh, London life. He loved all these grand ladies who were his pals. He was homosexual, so there was never any question of any funny business with him. But they would bring him stories. They would take him to parties. He, he said one year he had dined out something like 313 times. Mm. He hardly ever ate at home. He was, all, he was a great diner out. And he would collect stories from people. We spoke about William, William, his brother, in a previous podcast, and we, about the book about William, who was a, a genius, a total genius. But um, you know, when you say when you say that he was homosexual, I don't believe he ever allowed William or his other siblings to know that. He constantly, he was a great letter writer. I mean, there were so many of his letters, but in all of the letters, he spoke about being celibate as distinct from being, practicing anything. You see, pre-Freud, people didn't think of themselves, they didn't identify themselves by their sexual predilections. And I wish it were still the case. Mm. Um, Roger Casement, for instance, I don't think would ever have dreamt that he was homosexual. He just had this little hobby on the side. Uh, James would have been more sophisticated than Casement. But again, he wouldn't have thought of himself as exclusively anything. Mm. He was human. And would he not have confided, say, in William, to whom he was very close, and Alice, the sister, would he not have confided in them about his any relationships that he might have had? He might have told Alice. He certainly wouldn't have told William. No. Well, a lot of brotherly uh, rivalry mm. there. In terms of his fitting into London society, John, he, was he wasn't in the army. He wasn't in a select school. He wasn't in a university. Uh, you know, and this was what they checked out. I yes, mean, but he was a gentleman. The great concept of the English gentleman. It's one of the great gifts that England gave to the world from the time of Elizabeth up to the end of the 19th century. The concept of the gentleman. The gentleman was a very specific creature. You know, they would read Victorian literature and they'd say, you know, he had lots of money and he's very well-mannered, so, but not a gentleman. Mm. It was never defined what a gentleman yeah, is. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what... Well, no, it was never defined. You just knew a gentleman and, when you met one. And more specifically, more importantly, you knew a non-gentleman when you met him and you were very wary of him. And would Henry James have been accepted as yes, a gentleman? Absolutely. He would have. Absolutely. He was also very interested and in the first few novels that he wrote, he, he was interested in talking about the emigre um, Americans coming over to, uh, I suppose a lot of this would be the women coming over, the rich American women coming over to London and to Britain to see if they could find themselves a, a lord or an earl and help financially in the running of the great big house. Oh yes, the late novels, the, late, the three late, late great novels are based on that, that, that Britain was starting to lose its money. The great estates couldn't maintain themselves, but there were all these millionaires in America who made money from the railroads and from the mining, and they had daughters, and the daughters were for sale. 
he he became known as the master, and Colin Tobin wrote the book called The Master, but he was known as the master. How did he get that? Who, who, who initially called him the master and why? Because he's the greatest novelist that ever lived. Is he? Is he do yes. you really think so? Yes. Greater than the great Russians, greater than the great French. There may, have been, there may have been more interesting people, say Tolstoy. There mm. may have been more... What about someone like Dickens? Oh, no, Dickens is just a hack. <laughs> well, it depends what you're Did talking you know about. Dickens, Are you talking about entertainment or about art? All right, Henry James was art, Charles Dickens was entertainment. Yeah. Um, did he know Dickens? Would he have I met? I doubt it. I doubt he would want to meet Dickens. Who, who would he have known? Who, who, let me, sorry, can I ask you this? Uh, so he was the master. Who was his master? Who, who, who was the one that he admired? Had he a mentor? Was there a writer that he emulated, that he... He admired Balzac very Balzac. much, but only because Balzac was doing something entirely different to him. He wasn't a rival. Besides, he was dead. James would not have recognised anybody as his master. He knew how good he was. Did he die a happy, successful man? He was 70, I think, 71 or something when he died. Nobody dies happily. <laughs> Nobody dies <laughs> willingly, that's for sure. He died... He died a disappointed man. He had revised all of his books, or certainly the ones he wanted to preserve... 30 volumes, I think, uh, novels and short stories. He put them together for what's called the New York edition. And it didn't sell. It didn't sell anything. His time was passed. This was the first decade, first decade and a half of the 20th century. And his fine discriminations and his subtleties and his, his ambiguities were giving way to the popularity of H.G. Wells, you know, the future, machines, trains, rather like our own time, mm. when the imaginative art is being pushed aside in favour of that steely, progressive art. It, that, will, that will fade too. All right, that was uh, Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Here's your chance to win a new Doro 7030 feature phone with access to WhatsApp and Facebook, designed specifically for seniors and available to buy in Vodafone stores or online. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a newly launched Doro 7030 handset is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro phones, making technology easy for all. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. 
Keeping Ireland connected. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. Welcome back. Well, our third book, and we referred to it earlier on, is Independence Day by Richard Ford. And uh, John, you asked me to read this, and I had read it before. But, and, and, but in actual fact, I have to be brutally honest and say, you, you did want me to read Canada, which I had also read. And I know you regard Canada as Richard Ford's masterpiece. But um, I kind of talked my way around getting to read Independence Day again because I just loved it so much. And I just love Frank Bascom as a character who is now featured in, I think, three of his books. It's certainly The Sports Writer, then Independence Day, and then Lay of the Land. And I gather he's doing a fourth, by the way. Oh, no, he's doing Frank. a fifth because there fifth. was... There was uh, oh, let me be let frank me be with frank. you. You're quite right. Let me be frank with you. That's right. And uh, But you're both a friend and an admirer of Richard Ford's, isn't that correct? Yes, I am. Therefore, I'm biased, so you must take what I say with a certain advisement. But uh, I think Independence Day is one of the great novels, one of the great American novels of the 20th century. Uh, I think Richard Ford is the finest living American writer. Now, the competition isn't high at the moment. Uh, you know, Updike is gone. Mm. Lots and lots of people have gone. But uh, even when Updike was alive, I think Ford was still up there among the top two or three. What is so special about the writing of Richard Ford? Well, first of all, it is so accommodating. Not accommodating to the reader, but accommodating to the world. Nothing is foreign to Frank Bascom. Richard Ford's protagonist. He's endlessly fascinated by the world and by the people around him. I think that's what makes Richard Ford a great American novelist. European and novelists from other nations are not as interested in people as American writers are. Interested in ideas, in landscape portrayal, in all kinds of things, but not, not so much in people and in society. I've said this to Richard myself. I said, you know, you are so fortunate because you have the great fictional subject, which is the making of a nation. And America is still in the process of making itself. It's only, what, 250 years old or something. Uh, it's still a nation trying to find itself, trying to make itself, trying to find a voice for itself, trying to unify itself. And this is one of the things that Richard writes about. It's the thing that Richard writes about. Interesting that he describes before you have met him, Joe Markham, who is the guy who with his wife um, is coming to look at one of, of Frank's who is now a real estate and property owner, uh, one of the houses with the possibility of buying it. But he has described Joe Markham before you actually get to meet him. And you know this guy is going to be difficult. He's unpleasant. That Frank actually can't stand him. And, and you're dying to meet Joe Markham. And when you do, you just can't stop smiling because he's such a ghastly character. But Frank has already told you and you're prepared for it. 
Well, that's what Ford does. He catches the the richness of American life, the incoherence of American life, the ruggedness, which is, I suppose, a polite way of saying the vulgarity of American life. But vulgarity is a, you know, much maligned word. It simply means of the people. Uh, and Richard's books are about the endless cavalcade that American life is. It's extraordinary. I remember the first time I went to America, went to California, and I was being driven somewhere along a relatively, you know, not a huge six-lane highway, but coming towards me was a lorry, a truck, with a house on the back of it. A house. A wooden frame house, you know, three, four bedroom. And I said, my God. And people in the car with me, Americans, said, oh, yeah, they're moving house. And I said, so that's where the town comes from? I said, yeah, we actually move house. Actually we moves. pick it up and we bring it somewhere else. Uh, that's one of the things that, that, that... And it was brilliant to get the former sportswriter to be an estate agent because property, land, all that means... We wouldn't understand it at all. To us, property and land is blood. It's lifeblood. To them, it's stuff that you change. You give it away, you, you, you get it, you, you get a house, you pick it up, you put it in the back of a truck, you take it somewhere else. Life in America is movement, constant mm. movement. That's why I say it's still, it's like one of those gas clouds in space. It's, it's moving and moving and trying to form itself into a planet. That's what's so exciting about life in America, that it's just, it's not finished. And Frank is observing and um, I absolutely love the asides. There's so, so many of Frank's uh, cognitive processes are in brackets. You know, that he'd make a statement and then he'd say, well, that wouldn't be me, of course, because I'm a bit of a loser, et cetera, et cetera, close bracket. You know, and it's the side, the, the, the asides by Frank Bascom that are just so brilliant. Oh, yeah, I think that Ford is one of the great stylists, prose stylists of our time. Uh, he's not often credited with that. People talk about his people and his plots and his storyline and all that, but as a stylist, for instance, you mentioned Canada. Canada is written in a completely different style to Independence Day. It's flat to the point of you know, almost being, as Roland Barthes would say, degree zero, and yet it is superbly exciting, but it's exciting in a different way. You don't read Canada for the pleasure of the prose. You read it for the extraordinary empathy that Richard Ford has with the people he's writing about and the insight. These are all old-fashioned qualities in a writer. Wonderfully so. That's why the American novel is still so strong. It's not as strong as it was, but it is still relatively strong compared to say, France or Italy. I suppose it's too grandiose for me to make the observation, but I'm going to make it anyway. As I was reading Independence Day, because it's almost a minute-by-minute description of Frank's travails and travels on on the one day, there's a a kind of a Ulysses feel to it because 
he's bringing to life an entire area up there around Maine, which is where he has set it. And it is like a minute by minute of his getting in the car, meeting so-and-so, moving off to go to pick up his son. He'll describe what his son is like. He has a problem with the son. He's, the boy smells. He's 15. He barks. He's a terribly unpleasant child. And he's going to bring him out now for the day. And it becomes a farce, the, the taking out of the boy. But it is minute by minute. Yeah, but it's a heartbreaking farce too. Mm. I mean, Richard has said in public, so I'm not making any revelations, he said he hates children. But the portrait of the boy in this is so vivid and so empathetic and so moving. Uh, that, you know, I think that's one of the masterly things about it is the relationship between Frank and, and the son, the damaged son. The truth is, of course, too, he's very witty. I, I found myself laughing out loud at places. Oh, yes, he's very funny. Uh, he, again, he has that laconic, dour, skewed American sense of humour that I absolutely love, and he does it beautifully. You don't get belly laughs from him. You get quiet laughter because every line that Ford writes is aware of the tragic condition of being alive as well as the beauty and the pleasure, the passion of being alive, there's the awareness that we will die. As Hemingway said, how can we live knowing that we shall die? Although I said that once to a person somewhere, and she said, yes, but how can we not live knowing that we shall die? And Richard would have both points of view. Interestingly enough, too, with Frank Bascom, he started him out as the sports writer, then he went into real estate and so on. But I understand that he's now writing about Frank dying for his next and presumably, obviously, the end of Frank Bascom. But again, um, he's, it's, it's a life. He has literally created a life. Yeah. And I'm sure he did not set out to say, I'll write a five-part series of, of about one man. I'm sure that's not what he intended. Oh, I don't think anybody intends that. I don't think anybody starts out. You know, it'd be a horrible sensation to think that after I finish this book, there'll be two or three more to write. That would be terrifying. It's tough enough without that. It is. Ford himself, you you know him quite well. Um, and I've interviewed him. I had the pleasure of interviewing him. And, and I must say I enjoyed his company very much. Um, He's, he seems very susceptible to criticism. I'm terribly surprised to hear that he got into a spot of bother last year. He was awarded a prize in Paris and there were a number of writers who said you cannot give him the prize because he had spat upon another writer because the guy had given him a bad write-up. And there are other examples of his reacting badly. What, where does this come from? Or are, are all of you like that? Would you react uh, very badly to... Uh, I'm sure we all would be if we had the courage and the nerve and if we were as good, a <clears throat> good with guns as Richard is. Well, didn't he, didn't he shoot at somebody's... What, tell me, no, I, think sorry, it was John, I think it was a review by John McGarren of one of his books, which wasn't very favourable. So he took it out and pinned it to a tree and shot it. Which I think was nice. Shot the review. Shot the review. <laughs> That's one way of getting rid of him. Look, I don't read reviews. One of the reasons is that they used to upset me so much. The good ones, usually more than the... I mean, the favourable ones, more than the unfavourable. The unfavourable ones, at least, you were able to say, yeah, he's right, that's exactly what I think of my own stuff. The good ones were the really annoying ones, so I just gave it up. Why are they annoying? 
because they're... Look, if you spend two to five years writing a novel, you know everything about it. Nobody can tell me anything about one of my books. I know how bad it is. Do you know how bad it is? Oh, I yeah. mean, of course. You, you, but you, but you'll have finished it, and you're not going to. In this case, as you've just said, you're not going to be too happy with it, but you're still going to give it to your publisher to be published, and as, to be reviewed. As the poet Paul Valéry said, a work of art is never finished, only abandoned. You get to a point where you say, "I can't be doing with this anymore. I'll do a new one." Somebody once asked Iris Murdoch why did she write so many books, and she said, "I think each new one that I write will exonerate me for all the others." No. We tried to get it right. Are you sensitive to criticism? Do you, do you read reviews? Are you concerned what people will write about your latest book? I don't read reviews at all. I don't read anything about myself, uh, you know, not interviews or anything else. So that I have this wonderfully light sensation. I'm like a sort of a hot air balloon, which is <laughs> nicely put, I think. I'm a hot air balloon. I'm floating above things. I don't. I don't care. Um, I can't afford to care. It would interfere with what I'm doing. So, so I'll tell you that was a terrible review you got in the Irish Times today. How would that affect you if I did say that? You can always depend on people, especially your good friends, to tell you about the really bad reviews. <laughs> okay. Well, I wouldn't. As it happens, I wouldn't say it. But people will... People ring me up and say, that was, see that thing in The Guardian? You should sue. You know, that was definitely libelous. And I say, I don't want to know about it. But let me read this bit. I say, no, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to know. But are you self-conscious if a book came, went from you into the public domain and you were not happy with it and you felt it wasn't very I'm good? I'm never happy with a book. I would be very suspicious of any writer if he or she said she was satisfied with the book. Do you understand? Because there's, there's always something wrong with it. Do you understand Richard Ford taking out a gun and shooting at somebody's review of one of his books? Do you understand it? I do, but Richard is... He's a short fuse sometimes. I admire that in him. When I finish a book... I have that relief that you have when you scrape a piece of... You've stepped on a piece of chewing gum and it's stuck to your shoe and you scrape it off on the edge of the pavement and you get it all off and it's gone. That's how I feel. A relief. But it's a small relief, isn't it? Yeah. But you then know? you're going to start again. Then I'm going to start again. And, what do and you, next time I'm going to get it right. And what do you, do you... Do you come up with another story in your head? Do you take time and say, I have to come up with another plot, another story? No, no, no. no. They're, they're completely organic. I never know can never remember where a book began. Do, when, you, when you meet with Richard Ford, do, do the two of you discuss your, your methods of writing, <laughs> your no. inspiration, or do you...? No, we talk about money, publishers, and the people we hate. <laughs> okay. All right, shall we leave Richard Ford then and uh, Independence Day? And I have to say how much I just simply loved the book. I think I was telling you before we, before we did the recording that I, I read it before, but I was interviewing Richard Ford and had, I read all, his, uh, all that he had written before the interview and I had to speed read it and it can be very unsatisfactory, but this time I read it and boy did I get pleasure yeah, out of it. No, it is going, just going through it this morning, a luxury. Right? 
going through it this morning, I, I think he can, and I hope we got this into just how rich it is. It's like, you know, it's it's like a, a, a huge, superb yeah. meal that yeah. doesn't make you feel full. Right, let me just recap briefly. The three books that we discussed today were Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, and Independence Day by Richard Ford. I do hope you enjoyed our podcast. And once again, John Banville, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.